Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 131, recorded on August 18th, 2021. The Cloud Pod relaxes and has an AWS data brew. Good evening, Jonathan, Peter, and Ryan. Hey, Justin. Good evening. Hola. That's another fantastic week here in the cloud, you guys. Uh, lots to talk about, as well as Summit and reinvent, uh, Reinforce uh, coming up next week very quickly, uh, which, ironically enough, we said Reinforce was canceled last week because that's what AWS was telling us on their website, and then they said, no, no, it's not canceled, it's virtual. So, <laughs> uh-huh. They clearly can't make up their own minds. Uh, mm-hmm. So, Thank goodness. Uh, you know. So if you, uh, you you heard us and you said we heard it was canceled, and then now we're talking about it again, it's because it was uncanceled. The uncanceled conference, there you go. Uncanceled. Mm-hmm. Uncanceled. Yeah. Well, uh, then we have some some news, and then we have some predictions to get to, so let's uh, let's just jump into it tonight. Uh, first up, uh, according to the, a report from NextGov, uh, Amazon has won a $10 billion cloud computing contact from the NSA, codenamed Wild and Stormy, which clearly started in the Trump administration. Uh, the contract <laughs> is said to be part of the NSA's attempts uh, to modernize classified data storage. And of course, uh, now that uh, AWS has won, Microsoft is challenging the award, as they should. Two weeks before being notified by the NSA that Amazon had won, uh, Amazon has deferred all the questions to the NSA Public Affairs Department, but Microsoft had to say... Uh, based on the decision, we are filing an administrative protest via the Government Accountability Office, and we are exercising our legal rights, and we'll do carefully and responsibly. Uh, And all I can say is the first rule of secret NSA contract is don't talk about the secret NSA contract. So, (laughs) well done, Microsoft. Well done. Yeah. Little Jedi payback. Yeah, no, it's clearly clearly Mm -hmm. all about Jedi, and (laughs) they're upset about that. Yeah. You think the government would have figured out, don't make it a $10 billion contract. Don't make it exclusive. It's so easy. Yeah, make it up to yeah. ten billion for all of the providers, and then use whatever you want quietly. I think it's I, they must be using the big number to you know just leverage for features that don't exist and, and custom development of things that they're specifically asking for from these cloud providers. Because otherwise, you're right. This makes no sense. It's anti the you know paper what you use cloud model. Like what's this? You know what is a ten billion contract if it's you're only going to spin up three different servers, you know, like, yeah. I, I think it's no part sense. of the bidding process. They, they kind of like, well, if you commit to X, X money dollars to spend over the next however many years, then we'll give you this discount. And so I, I, I just figured it was, it was tied into the whole, uh, the whole evaluation and, and bid process, but who, who the hell knows? I will leave the $10 billion when I see it on Amazon's bottom line at some point. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of those things too, you know, to even go to bid, you have to have a dollar amount and why don't you throw a number on there? And nowadays, 10 billion is not a lot of money when it comes to infrastructure. So, you know, you might as well throw it on the on the, the RFP and then have people kind of meet the number. So I mean, that's what, like 10, 15, not gateways? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Lots of S3 access. They, said, they do say it's about modernizing the... Uh, NSA's data storage, so you know, a lot of a lot of S3, maybe a lot of snow cones and snow machine machines. I don't know. Let's see. Well, Werner is uh, up to blogging again this week, and you know, he doesn't blog very often, uh, but when he does, it's always very, very interesting at what he blogs. And so uh, he opens up talking about uh, you know music venues and how he's missed music during the pandemic and live music at that. Uh, and so you know, he talked about the needs for venues to scale. To meet audience demands and needs, just like e-commerce platforms like Amazon.com have to scale needs, except for Amazon has to do it in seconds versus 
you know, months or years of the music facility would potentially have to do. Uh, and he goes on a little bit of a history walkthrough, uh, telling us about the early days, of course, of Amazon.com being the monolithic executable that it was, multi-gigabytes in size, took a days to compile. Oh, sounds like my day job. <laughs> uh, and due to the long delays, it was difficult to see the impacts of change of the code base and the impact on production because they were so disconnected with code being complete weeks ago and then not actually seeing production until several days later. Of course, everyone knows that Amazon transformed into an API-first based microservices organization, loosely coupled, uh, and has become the juggernaut they are because through these processes. Uh, and he talks about with the shift of the ownership to microservices, the need for teams to manage the deployment and operation of their services uh, resulted in the streamlining of processes and procedures similar to what we call CICD today. Uh, and as they first migrated into microservices, configurations were managed directly within an application's code base, making changes slow and still requiring services to redeploy or restart to adopt a new config. And it became clear to them that while CICD practices and technologies fixed one problem for deployment, it still prevented them from modifying application behavior quickly, especially in response to dynamic live needs. And so this led to three new capabilities they felt they were needed to help facilitate this. And first is the ability to store and update configuration data quickly, separate from code deployments. Second is the ability to have applications fetch configurations from external services. And three, the ability to check and validate configurations for safety. And to achieve this, Amazon, of course, built a centralized dynamic configuration management system that enables teams across Amazon to store and fetch configurations quickly and with reliability. And also allowed teams to separate config values from application code and respond to configuration updates as they change, removing the need for lengthy redeploys and restarts. And they called this continuous configuration, or CC for short, and has a, had a fundamental impact on their ability to maintain high levels of availability while being able to adapt and react in real time. And then Amazon, of course, uh, had AWS codify this into AWS App Config, uh, which is a service that no one uses because it's part of AWS Systems Manager, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, and so customers could benefit from the same lessons that Amazon learned over the years. Uh, Amazon, you know, developers over the years have hacked this uh, through different methods, including static config files at boot, uh, through user data, or pulling it dynamically from S3. But true dynamic configuration is different, and the source of configuration lives in an independent configuration managed system and is pulled by its consuming applications. And typical app config configurations that are prevalent are things that modify operational behavior, such as throttling limits, connection limits, or logging verbosity. So now you know how they do rate limiting, uh, as well as feature <laughs> access, including uh, feature flags, A B testing, and user allowed deny lists, all through app config. Uh, and this is all really great. Provides you percent uh, simple fallback mechanisms, allowing you to make changes to only a small percentage of users, or to analyze the effects before rolling out to larger systems, and reduces the fear of deployment. Continuous configuration reduces the fear of changing your config. So, uh, overall, so this is a great blog post. I highly recommend it if you're the dev space or the DevOps space or ops space. Uh, quite a uh, good uh, tidbits out of this article. So, why isn't this premise store again? Like, what's What's it is parameter store. It's parameters. It's the other side of parameter store. So app config is the 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 part you embed your application that when your parameters and parameter store change, your application reloads. So is it its own service, or is it really more just in, in the, Well, it's part of. It's in the system systems manager sort of umbrella, but yeah, it's its own service. So it's it's an API. It's an API that you can call with um, some identifying characteristics. Um, specifically um, the name of the service. And they, they mentioned this very <laughs> prominently in their documentation because apparently if you call it without that identifier, you get charged. Um, <laughs> and so, because it's it's part of their pricing model. And I think that's, you call it without that configuration when you're as part of the install, but then pulls, pulls for the configuration or updated configuration are separate. And so this is, it's, it, I mean, the, the blog post is mostly talking about the principles and not so much the service, which I, this is something that 
Warner's put words to you know, ideas that I've had and struggles that I've had that I haven't really sort of formulated into a cohesive idea in my head yet, just, you know, challenges and different solutions. And, um, and so I do think this is something that, um, I know that you use Jonathan, you just don't know it yet. So your proxy service, for instance, and it dynamically updating a config, Mm -hmm. that's what configuration, you know, continuous configuration is. And so from a larger, larger principle, like that's sort of what this is talking about. And, And for me, it's more valuable because it shows the evolution of a company like Amazon and allows me to sort of measure my current thinking and my current company separately um, on that sort of yardstick of progress. And so my thinking is only three, four years behind, you know, stuff Amazon's inventing today. My company, five <laughs> years, but, uh, you know, like working to make it better, you know. And so that's, it's, I think it's important to go through and from that perspective of having a huge monolithic thing to sort of, give back to the community in sense and these are the lessons that they've learned I, I like it i mean as we've moved code into code repos what's been lost along the way is well that's great but where do we store the configurations of these many environments and many applications or microservices so that we know what's supposed to be running in places and cmdb has always been kind of the answer but that's a little outdated and much more oriented around the assets themselves than configurations and then of course you have chef and puppet and those those mm-hmm. are maybe um, a little bloated for what they're talking about here, which is simple application concerns. Mm-hmm. And I'm laughing only because just three months ago, I wrote this exact same thing, the poll parameter store. And yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, it's, like it's, it's, co- it's, it's yeah. quantifying ideas, you know, like, um, yeah, I had a very similar sort of like um, realization. Like if I was just six months, if I had just written a blog post six months ago. Yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, when was the app config released? Uh, I mean, it, 2019. I mean, yeah, it had yeah. been there this whole time, and we just ignored it because it's part yeah. of systems config, systems yeah. simple <laughs> systems manager. Unfortunately, yeah, no, exactly. It it was a service that I did not know about until this blog post, and it has been there for several years. And well, pres- yeah, they just don't manage that service well. Presumably, it really requires the SSM agent to, to to do this stuff. Now, is it just an API call? It's just an API call. It's actually you know like I because I went through this. I had the very similar skepticism of like because it's in the systems manager sort of umbrella, like, oh, okay, yeah, this makes sense as if I'm configuring my fleets and I'm doing this and I've done all these things. And if I'm doing that, I may as well be you know, writing an application, you know, deployment mm-hmm. recipe or cookbook or script or whatever. Um, but no, this actually isn't, it's, it's much more simple, much more elegant. It can be as complicated as you want or as simple as you want, which is kind of nice. You know, I haven't used it. So, you know, a little caveat asterisk. there. Yeah. A little <laughs> asterisk on that comment. Like I, you know, a lot of Amazon services, it's a great idea until you get into the details and you're, yeah. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder how that works for SRE. You know, if you've got a fleet of servers, some of which are configured with A and some of which can configure with B and and then we start getting errors. Well, uh, how do you now break out those those dashboards and things into the errors for errors for, for version A of the config, version B of the config? It's, so I mean, this, this interface is with the CloudWatch metrics, so it'll auto roll back that configuration if there's errors. So it's it's much more like a, an orca, a change orchestrator in that sense, where you you'd roll out a, a version of your config, and then it, the the app config service will, depending on how you configure it, it will scale over you know ten percent of your thing to the new configuration, and then and then okay now ten percent now we'll do twenty or whatever you configure it, and it'll monitor CloudWatch alarms for that. I mean, it just, it just sounds like the the principles which you've already been applying to 
percentages of containers running or percentages of uh, of uh, EC2 instances in the fleet using a different config. They're just using, applying the same principles further and further down the stack. So it makes, yeah. it makes a lot of sense. I'm actually mm-hmm. excited to use it because it's just one less bit of code that I have to maintain for my own stuff now. So yeah, always <laughs> <laughs> the best part. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I suspect that you you know, also with tagging and and the CloudWatch logs agents that you get in SSM and some other things, you could actually you know solve some of those questions you had too. Like, well, how do I know if it's, this is the server that's hosting the you know the blue feature versus the green feature, and that could be part of your tagging strategy too, and part of uh, you know how you do how you. A feature flag version, whatever it is, and, and have that in your tagging thing. So yeah. there are ways to solve those problems as well, which is or, yeah. Hopefully, it has the integration with CloudWatch events so that you can you know schedule some automation in the completion of a run or completion of a deployment or a failback or a failover rollback. That's the word. Yeah, you know roll, that kind of thing too. Rollback, not fall forward. Fall forward. Roll back. Yeah. <laughs> Just fall on my face like I usually do. This this blog post though, you know, whenever you go back and ask the question, why is it that an online retailer would be the right company to outsource my IT to? <laughs> yeah. I think this is a good reminder of why Amazon is really well positioned to, to offer these services. Like they run into all the problems we run into, except yeah. they run into them years ago because mm-hmm. they've they've gotten to that scale first. Well, not only that, but like A/B testing in marketing has probably been a thing way before it was ever a thing in IT. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure, <laughs> definitely. All right. Well, I I want to point out that Werner Vogel's article because uh, you know typically uh, this is the time he starts setting up the stage for what he's going to talk about at reInvent. <laughs> so I suspect that we may be in star for a very large configuration management topic <laughs> at Reinforce. So keep that in mind for or sorry, at reInvent. Uh, so do keep that in mind uh, as you think about reinvent predictions in the future. But first, we have mm-hmm. to get to summit and reinforce predictions. Uh, we will fully admit to you that we suck at both summit and reinforce predictions. <laughs> it's not great. Uh, we haven't done well in the past, but we're going to try it because it's been a while, and uh, we're going to see how we do. Uh, and it's a good warm up before we get to reinvent, which is really where the points matter uh, at the end of the year. Uh, so before the show, we did do rolling of the dice to uh, see who ends up. Uh, Ryan rolled uh, the highest number, followed by Peter, followed by Jonathan, and I. I rolled up, you know, with a two and uh, lost, uh, as appropriate. So uh, that's no great. So that's the order we're going to go in today. Uh, Ryan, you are up first, and you are on the board for. All oh, right. You know, you're the, you know the rules, or should I explain the rules? At this we point? should probably explain the rules. We should probably. So uh, this is a, uh, a prediction, uh, really a, a wish list, if you will. Uh, from each of your hosts here, what we would like to see Amazon release uh, to help us out potentially dreams crushed uh, normally after these events. But uh, yeah, we're hoping that these are the things that maybe get announced uh, on stage. Uh, we do avoid anything that we are aware of from an NDA perspective, uh, just because that gets dicey. Uh, you know, if it's been on the internet or just a pure guess shot in the dark, that's all fair game for us to talk about. Uh, but if it's something we know through an NDA, we don't talk about it. Uh, in any- Shape or form here on the show. Even if one of our other co-hosts who's not under the NDA mentions it, we will not say anything. Just play dumb. <laughs> so that's how this works. Uh, you know, they're scored one point per item. Uh, Ryan used to be our tiebreaker. So far, we haven't had a problem with that because we typically do so poorly that only one person clearly wins every time. And so uh, we're just gonna keep going with that. We do have a tiebreaker question in case something does happen, uh, and we will go from there. So we'll see how it goes. All right, so, now, Ryan, you're really on the board. <laughs> I'm noting now that maybe I should have known the rules before I did my predictions because you know. Saying this is, you know, the wish list of things we'd like to have. That was clearly the intent at one point, but I think you broke precedent and and turned it into what was announced on the main stage. 
long well, ago. I mean, I mean, you can, you, you know, I mean, wish list, or you can try to win the game and try to go for. I mean, I yeah. have a couple of those too. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like it depends on how you're playing this game. Are you trying to win, yeah. or are you trying to have a wish list? And, oh, I always play to win. Exactly. And so, with my first announcement in that vein, um, I suspect that AWS will not announce any new services for the summit or the keynote. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> One dollar. One dollar. <laughs> I mean, you should say that for the tiebreaker, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it sort of influences my tiebreaker. You know, what am I going to choose a different number for my tiebreaker? <laughs> right, exactly. You're going to hedge both oh sides of that bet. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> uh, and we are counting this as both keynotes. So the, if there's a, I think uh, there's a summit keynote and there's also a re- force keynote so both of them count in this so wherever it shows up we will count it mm-hmm. <laughs> unless it's in a recorded session that's not a keynote all right peter that puts you on the board well i am not smart enough to figure out how to win so i am just going with my wish list and first on the wish list is multi-region cognito pools Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> That is nice. That would be nice. Yeah, I like yeah. that one too. Yeah, this is all, all these are coming directly from customer pain or engineer yeah. pain. My engineers. Yeah, no, <laughs> that's a good one. That's a good one. Jonathan, uh, I know you struggled before the show to come up with anything to predict. So, how did where did you end up on your first pick? So, I think ransomware or, or ransoms in general has been a lot in the news for the past, certainly the last six months, maybe the last year. I think there'll be mention that reinforce of how AWS can help protect your data from. Uh, ransom attacks. Ransom attacks. Excellent. Excellent choices. Uh, I am going with the tried and true bandwidth ingress egress cost reductions for my first guess. Mostly because I really desperately want it. Uh, yes. And I'm, if I keep if I keep hitting this clock, it's eventually going to be right. Right. <laughs> so that's uh, that's where I'm going with this one for my first pick. All right, Ryan, I put you on, your, on the board for your second. So that my predictions go downhill from that first one. That that took all my energy. So uh, the next one, I I do believe that we will see a um, a pretty big spread uh, as far as like a, a either a case study or or a feature mention of processing power of graviton and cost savings. So you you can you articulate that into a bullet point that I can add into on a bullet document? point? Yeah, we'll we'll see <laughs> a uh, AW will highlight a case study on the performance and cost benefits of Graviton. Case study benefits cost of Graviton. It's really hard to think of services Amazon will release when my first thought was I don't think they're going to do any. So this <laughs> yeah, is, it's exactly. a it's a bit of a struggle. I mean, I, I kind of went out and looked for like, what's the what's the really new hotness in open source uh, enterprise mm. software? And I, couldn't come with anything. <laughs> I was like, I think we covered most of them nowadays. So it's hard to say. All right, Peter, number two, give us another customer pain point. Uh, let's go with organization level networks. Ooh. So, yeah, trying to solve the problem and giving orgs features around uh, network networking Excellent. across all the accounts. I also had a uh, organizational level thing for one of mine, so we'll see if we get to it or not. Jonathan, number two. I think we will see uh, improvements or additional features around the CloudFormation template um, validation and scanning all that stuff. Can't remember what it's called now. 
Like the drift control? No, stuff? no, the um the 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 validation of templates to do what you think they're gonna do. I can't remember what that's no. um <laughs> that always amazes me. <laughs> yeah. They're gonna do what they say they do. That's yeah. what they're gonna do. They're <laughs> never that's probably never gonna directly align with what you think they're gonna do. Well, but. it's more it's more around them doing what somebody else says they ought to be doing. Yeah. I like that better because unfortunately in my experience with cloud formation, it was exactly what I told it to do, not just not what I wanted it to do. Yep. <laughs> I wanna I wanna just give it my intent, not my not my actual code. Yeah. <laughs> like what I say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so this one I actually have a personal desire for, which is an Aurora serverless, uh, Aurora, Aurora serverless, uh, MySQL 8 support. Uh, I'd like to see that come finally, as well as, you know, Aurora serverless V2 should also generally available. At this. So that's what my wish list is on that one, because I can then use it for the, pod, the cloud pod. Mm-hmm. All right, Ryan, number three. Mm. Going to have to pivot on the fly. Um, what, did one of us take one of your your three guesses? So the yeah, uh, uh, a little bit. Where it's close <laughs> enough, where I, um, I feel like I shouldn't do. It. They're not going to announce any new services. They're not going to bring me milk and cookies like I want them to. What are they going to do? Um, I think that they're going to. Oh, that's a little. Yeah, it's too close to. Crap! To record the timestamp of me dilly dally. Oh no! <laughs> oh no! Oh no! This is staying in. <laughs> on the edge of our seats. Yes. Oh yeah. Okay. For my start, my famous predictions. I mean, I mean, this is a draft. I don't know. You could trade your draft pick to somebody. <laughs> yeah, always... trade back. You could trade yeah. back. That'd be awesome. Oh, I'll <laughs> gladly go last at this rate, um, just for the sake of our viewers who don't want to listen to me him and ha anymore. Yeah, I'll go last. All right, we'll, we'll let you switch back to the back. Peter, number three. I'm going to go to some significant feature updates to uh, Lambda at the edge. And the reason I say that is there's, there's a couple of specific pain points to deploying at the edge. So I wanna, I'm going to narrow that down to uh, deploying to, the, to Lambda at the edge. Like there's a couple of pain things right now, like environment variables or uh, version updates. You have to freaking send the entire API call, which is a disaster, just to update the version of the software you're running on the edge. So that's what I'm going with there. Um, just because I don't remember if you were here for that episode or not. Were you here when we talked about the new uh, CloudFront? serverless thing in addition to cloud lambda the edge no uh because they have because they because lambda the edge actually found it doesn't actually run at the edge it actually runs uh at, at basically the pops uh mm-hmm. and then they basically release the cloud front thing where you can now do like really teeny tiny like modifications at the cloud front edge uh which is really more like a lambda function at the very far edge so they sort of kind of did this already so i'm curious what this actually could be so I'm intrigued now. But I thought still you have to like send the entire API call. Uh, there is still some. For the whole CloudFront distribution instead of just the version of code. I mean, you're referencing it to, I mean, I remember the feature. I don't remember how many episodes ago that was. <laughs> but to, yeah. they, did do, they did do some work on this area to make this a little bit better, uh, to make it more like right. Google's version of the Edge. But, uh, well, that's still my prediction. 
It's fine. I'll, I'll go with it. Jonathan, your third. I think um, I would like to see a user behavior analytics tool for workspaces. Oh, interesting. Hmm. All righty. What type of analytics do you mean for that? Because I have something that's a little similar. Um, you know, watching what people are doing, the, the, the documents they're clicking on, the people they're emailing, just sort of like a, I don't want to go into too much detail there because that narrows down the scope of what I can win. <laughs> However, I, I think there is plenty of opportunity for collecting application metrics around what a user is doing in a workspace and then using um, a machine learning model to say whether gotcha. or not what they're doing is what they're supposed to be doing or whether it's risky. So pure analytics, though. Analytics and collecting the data, the metrics of what's going on. In the- yeah. You're, I mean, you're looking for a security function around UBA where, you're, you know, hey, Jonathan normally accesses the share, but yesterday he all of a sudden went to a share that was in Australia, which he doesn't normally go to, and that seems out of norm for him. That's right. Why, why yeah, did Jonathan what- download 300 gigabytes of, uh, of Git repositories today yeah. and then start looking on LinkedIn? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's what I thought you meant. Okay. So I, I'm very clear what that is. So it's good. Uh, I you know I have a couple different options to go through here, uh, but I I think I'm going to go with one that I would like to see, which is a tool to make uh, testing, editing, and authoring SCPs easier. Because uh, I I feel like they're dangerous sword right now with no protections. So I'm gonna put that for my third. Mm. And uh, who traded back, uh, Ryan, <laughs> you are uh, back on the clock. <laughs> and I'm no further along, so I'm just going to go with uh, that. I, I believe Amazon will finally do away with um, service control policies forever because they're terrible and they should <laughs> die in the fire. Uh, <laughs> all right. I mean, they will. Uh, I'll, I'll I don't think I'm going to win that one. Just so I'll, I'll, How about I give you, they'll give us something better than SCPs. Okay. They will, yeah, there you go. Major upgrade. <laughs> yeah, to SCP I don't know. Maybe features maybe, and functionality. Yeah, maybe maybe an error that says it's an SCP. It's like troubleshooting thing. <laughs> nice. Just no. did, uh, did any of you guys have any honorable mentions we didn't talk about? I scraped the bar off the ones that I had. I have, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think I've made it really clear that I don't. <laughs> okay, Peter, do you have any others? No, I'm good. <laughs> right, so I, I, I had a list of 12 because I just wasn't sure <laughs> what you guys would do. Uh, so I, I had Sim here because it was just a just an easy one to put up there. Uh, I had Redshift ML uh, because, you know, at reInvent, they started naming things with ML at the end of it. And I just thought, well, the Redshift thing I, I desperately dream for, uh, which will actually have a feature that's very similar to what I was thinking about uh, in a little bit here for Newschef this week. But Redshift ML might be something kind of cool. Uh, I did, of course, have whitelisting uh, for egress traffic because, uh, you know, why not? <laughs> this is another one that you guys mentioned before I thought would come up again. I had DLP because, again, that was one that we keep dreaming for. Uh, and then I had uh, Andy Jassy uh, will make an appearance if I was trying to play to win. Mm. That's, a, that's a good bet. Nice. Uh, I had the first open search uh, release for Elasticsearch and the rebranding uh, would happen. I had EKS Anywhere GA, which I was surprised uh, Ryan didn't go with. A GA announcement? For EKS. Yeah. I mean, they did ECS at reInvent, right? So, but not EKS. I guess. Yeah. And then uh, I, I predicted that Adam won't trash Oracle. <laughs> and a change, and a complete change of pace. So, I like go. that. I like that. 
Uh, so those are just honorable mentions that uh, I didn't have to use. So <laughs> I, I like what I got, uh, which is great. Uh, but we do now need uh, the number of predictions that you think are going to occur uh, in the show. And since we do this in reverse order, I am first. <laughs> and I am taking zero. <laughs> <laughs> you son of a... That's great. <laughs> Uh, Jonathan, how many things do you think we had announced uh, in one of the keynotes? Uh, uh, summits and um, the rate Summit one, and the reinforcements uh-huh. in total. Um, five. All right. Peter? Let's go three. I'm going to go three. And Ryan? You had to go with three. Like, <laughs> you can go with four. <laughs> you go with two. You go one. You go way out there. Be like, I you want to go. You can well, just we go zero. opposite of your yeah. other prediction and go six, and then you yeah. get everything above six. That's yeah. true. That's true. We can go five point one. <laughs> how, how do we even count a point one feature? Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't matter. It's yeah. the same as six. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm gonna do that. I think that's the only the only intelligent choice is to go with. The, they'll be. I think that's what the. I think that's what the. Uh, Saber metrics guys would do here. I think, yeah. that's, I think that's what the uh, the listeners are yelling at you to do right now. So. Yes, yes. <laughs> They're like, take yeah. six, take six, yeah. you fool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have all that is. room above six yeah. to get yeah. the hit. Yeah. Exactly. All right, well, it's we'll kind of funny because I can win and lose in the same in the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see how we do. I, I again, this this is the summits are hard. The reinforce uh, the first one was hard. Uh, so I'm hoping you know maybe it's something <laughs> worthwhile. But uh, we'll see. We'll find out. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod foghorn the promise of cloud delivered all right well uh moving on to any of things that were already released uh first up is code build uh code build now will support publicly viewable build results uh which allow you to view the build logs and artifacts publicly accessible to people who are not logged into the aws console Simplifies how Go Build project owners are able to collaborate with open source contributors because project owners don't need to administer AWS account access for each contributor. Before you needed an IAM user and configure their permissions in an open repository. With public builds, code build project owners are able to generate a public URL that loads the project build results. And any contributor with the URL is able to browse past builds, view build configurations, review logs, and download artifacts without logging into AWS. Which, you know, this seems like something only an open source project would do. And what open source project would want to use code build? And then I realized open search. <laughs> open search is the answer here. Uh, although they're using GitHub today, uh, they, you know, they have quite a bit of uh, code build built into that today. I can see that, that all of a sudden makes sense for them to be able to allow people to contribute from outside of AWS uh, on search. Well, they're they're not building with GitHub. They're they're they're, they're using they're Azure repository. They're not no. using GitHub Actions. Yeah. So it, I mean, it makes sense. I, you know, like this, a big part of the open source community and building trust in your product is having that little icon. You know, your little CI icon. You know, yep. and so a lot of other, you know, providers provide that. And so I think that this is a way to sort of establish the same sort of principle, but then plus some. So it's kind of nice. 
Yeah, a little dot if uh, your build is working or not tells me how how active mm-hmm. your your open source project actually is. Because <laughs> if it's been read for a while, I know no one's looking at it. Yeah. Uh, well, there has been a mess of glue data brew announcements this week. Uh, and so uh, instead of boring you all with all four of them, I'm going to summarize them down to one set of uh, talking points here. So, uh, you know, I can see this to be a continuing the mudding in the waters of what glue data brew is supposed to be. Because again, I my, my mind is still an ETL tool. <laughs> but the first one that it gave you this week was the ability to support numerical format transformations, which, you know, does seem pretty critical to an ETL tool. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. know. Uh, secondarily, it uh, supports logical conditions as transformations. Uh, you know, that's a bit more of an edge case in an ETL tool, but still pretty core ETL. And then thirdly, uh, they're now giving the ability to write prepared data to an AWS Lake Formation-based AWS Glue Data Catalog S3, which, yeah, that makes sense. I get that one. And then fourth, uh, supports writing prepared data into Tableau Hyperformat, which is keeping your friends close and your enemies closer. <laughs> nice. Yeah, this is, you know, they continue to sort of add in, they finally have like a cohesive package for ETL in, in Glue Data Brew. Um, I think it's what everyone was sort of wanting Glue to be when it was first released, including myself. And, you know, hopefully there are more users that are unlike me and will go back to Glue, which so far I have not. <laughs> I think most people <laughs> wrote it off a while ago and it's yeah. hard to go back. It's hard to, hard to uh, correct those old sins. It is really in the sweet spot, though, for the type of tool that you want to have near your data, tightly integrated with all your uh, all your uh, data stores. So it's a perfect thing for Amazon to keep swinging, even if they keep missing for a while <laughs> until they mm-hmm. get something that hits. Yeah, you keep iterating until someone until it hits traction. It's a yeah. strategy. It's not always a good one, <laughs> but uh, it's definitely something you could try. Well, Amazon API Gateway now supports a mutual TLS with certificates from third-party CAs and ACM private certificate authorities. Uh, this enables you to authenticate clients using certificate-based mutual TLS where digital certificates are exchanged between the client and the API Gateway before a secure connection is established. And uh, prior to this, you can only do it with ACM, which is great, uh, unless you already have certificates in place and you don't want to change them. So now you can now import those into uh, you know, your third-party certificate into the system or uh, an ACM private CA all ability to their for you today. All available for all regions that support the API gateway. Cough, cough, NSA. Yeah, Yeah, I think we ran into this a a few times, though, so this is going to be a nice little clearing of a pain point. Yeah, this is is the one that comes up, you know, mutual auth is becoming a bigger deal. Definitely, especially if you've already got your own CA, which you're already using on-prem and you want to migrate to the cloud, you, you just can't do it natively. And now you can. So the reason why I didn't go with Redshift ML uh, prediction for the reInvent Summit was because of this. Uh, Amazon Redshift will now allow you to share data across account. Uh, First, introducing cross-account data sharing. These new features give you a simple and secure way to to share fresh, complete, and consistent data in your Amazon Redshift data warehouse with any number of stakeholders across AWS organizations. And this makes it possible for you to share data across orgs and collaborate with external parties while meeting compliance and security. Redshift's comprehensive security controls and auditing capabilities using IAM integration, system tables, and AWS CloudTrail. And data can be shared at many levels, including database, schema, table, view, column, and user-defined function to provide fine-grained access controls tailored to users and businesses who need access to Redshift data. Uh, things to consider before you use this feature, of course, security permissions are all via IAM, so you keep those in check. Encryption is required on both the producer and consumer clusters, and it's only available for the RA3 no-types and of course, it's across account data sharing, but they do have to be in the same region. Uh, that is also something to keep in mind uh, as well. 
blown away. I mean, this, the, I mean, the reality is this is a huge problem that they're solving, which is, you know, you have multiple data science teams, you know, multiple teams analyzing data uh, and you want to be able to segregate them across. So this does make a ton of sense, but you know, it's super thrilling. Yeah. But give it maybe I mean, it's not exciting on paper, but it, what it actually does is cool. Yeah. Giving, giving people access to a subset of the data in another account is awesome, though, because now you can give people a, a potentially with a used to defined functions, an obfuscated view of production data for for testing or, or uh, some kind of analytics where you don't want people to have actual access to PII. Oh, I holy crap. I hadn't thought of that. That yeah. would be amazing. I was thinking about it from a pure, you know, hey, I, I'm a SaaS company and I want to make these views available natively in Redshift. To do that, to, you know, prior to this, you'd have to actually spin up your own Redshift cluster that you share, you know, that you make, gave, gave them access to. Basically, now I can use that user-defined function or even just a view that has their data limited to their tenant ID, uh, which makes it significantly easier to, for SaaS applications to integrate. Mm-hmm. So the reason why this is impressive as well is because this is one of the big use cases of Snowflake. This is one of the big things they yep. do. That's what I was just thinking <laughs> when you said that. I'm like, oh, yeah. this is this is your reinvent prediction. It's just late. It's just late, and this is why <laughs> yeah. this is why I decided yeah. not to go down the Redshift ML path. But, yeah, uh, yeah, no, this is this is a big deal. It's a very you know very subtly written blog post that doesn't really call it out in that way. But you know, if you read between the lines, you know that Redshift uh, definitely wants to not lose business to Snowflake. This is definitely an mm-hmm. area that uh, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, we've talked about it uh, for the last three weeks. <laughs> the uh, <laughs> confusion in instance naming continues this week with the new Sim M6i instance, which is, of course, the M6 Intel. Uh, now, remember, the M6A is for your AMD chips, uh, and your M6G is for your, all your ARM Graviton processors. Uh, so, I mean, it does make sense. Now you know the, the super secret decoder ring from the NSA. Uh, you now know what these mean. So this is the successor to the M5, which is one of the more popular instances after the C class. Uh, so the M5 or M6i instance uh, is a 15% improvement in price performance versus comparable fifth generation instances, and the new instances are powered by the latest Intel Xeon scalable processors, uh, which are based on Ice Lake, with an all-core turbo frequency of 3.5 gigahertz, super fast. Uh, the M6i has many benefits, including a larger instance size. The M6i.32x large will give you 128 vCPUs and 512 gigs of memory, making it easier and more cost-efficient to consolidate workloads and scale applications. I already mentioned that 15% improvement in compute price performance. There's also 20% higher memory bandwidth, and you can get 40 gigabits per second for EBS volumes and 50 gigabits per second for networking uh, if you're getting that new 32x large instance, as well as it gets always-on memory encryption out of the box. And the M6i also supports the elastic fabric adapter for the 32x large instance types. Available in six regions today, North Virginia, Oregon, Ohio, Ireland, Frankfurt, and Singapore, with more regions coming soon. So, no-brainer, upgrade your M5s. Then the question is, you know, I wonder how long it takes Amazon to cycle through as, because people can't do it right away, but not that tough to cycle these out. Um, how, how long does it take to basically replace 85% of the M5 fleet with M6s? I'm so curious to see what happens on the physical end of this. Hmm. Well, you, you're going to be limited by physical factors, like just straight installation running power and that kind of thing and rotating your stock. But then there's also, you probably got to shuffle a whole bunch of customers around to sort of consolidate them within your data center, right? Like there's probably still holdouts on M3s, C3s. <laughs> well, I mean, there's oh, still sure. holdouts on M1s. Yeah. M1s, <laughs> so. yeah. But like, but like, yeah, you, you, you connection drain these things and then you have hardware that's not doing anything and then you rip it out and then you stick in 
the new hardware and then you turn it on and you just keep going, I guess, just throughout the existing data center. Because a lot of this is going to be, this is effectively a hardware refresh, not necessarily a capacity increase. And I'm sure it's a little both, but. Well, you have to be careful with density in data centers, right? Because, uh, you know, with when you rotate stock, something like this, the your power draw is probably going to be larger than it was before. Right. And, you know, and so doing this piecemeal can be problematic, but, you know, it's also pretty, I'm, you know, I know Amazon's figured this out. I know. I just yeah. want to know. It's I, That's what I want <laughs> Warner's next blog post to be. Yeah. Someone, like, take us through the M5 to uh, M6 journey. Yeah, or Peter DeSantis or whatever. I mean, but you assume yeah. that you know you have customers who are using M5s who are not ready to move to M6s, so they had to have some capacity on the floor. It's not like they stopped selling M5s. You can, you know, I, hell, I can go sign up for an Amazon account right now and still get M4s mm-hmm. uh, if I really wanted to, or even M3s in some cases. So, I mean, like, when did they stop selling a legacy instance class to even have that type of pivot? I, and I assume there's a point where it doesn't make sense for them to continue to have an M3 or an M4, or even an M1, because the hardware. You know, refreshing old legacy hardware is not a great strategy either. Well, they can't even have, get the chips. They only have to keep around as many as people have actually paid for reservations for, for those specific instances. Right. I mean, they exactly. can they can draw down everything except what's already been booked, plus some kind of headroom, I guess. And then all of a sudden, scarcity makes you upgrade. The thing that really gets gets me though is that I can't believe that we're, we're how many years, almost twenty years into into the cloud. And we're still marketing instances based on the underlying hardware. I I, I want to get to a point where we don't really we don't really care. I mean, for Lambda, we don't we don't care. We don't care that it's running on Xeon or Graviton or anything else. We just give it the function. Do we care on Fargate? I mean, I know you have to specify x86 or ARM for Fargate, but I don't think you have to specify Intel or AMD, do you? No, no. But this this that's yeah. what I'm getting at. Like, so the the new the newer services, we don't care what the computer is underneath. We kind of get a, a level of service, and we d- we don't have to pick that it's a Xeon with three point five gigahertz. Yet these new instance types, they they must be very specifically targeting the people who actually care about the underlying performance of these very specific CPUs. So like, and I feel like it's actually gone the opposite direction. Like I feel like that's where they started with you know the sort of remember the vir- the virtual CPU units. Yeah. Where mm-hmm. and then. Like it was like yeah, forget that. People want to know what the hardware is underneath. Let's mm-hmm. advertise the hardware underneath. I felt like, and and maybe it was the consumer, the customers who wanted that, or maybe they just got better deals and had co-marketing deals with Intel and all the chip providers to, you know, give them some branding awareness in exchange for. Well, I mean, some, when they first started rolling out those something. AMDs, I mean, every keynote for that year, I think, said how much you could save fifteen percent off the top of your Intel-based stuff with AMD, and then you go by the AMD yeah. booth, and I'd be like, "Well, you know, you can save fifteen percent just by going to the AMD processor." Mm-hmm. So there's there's definitely a co-branding that's occurring on these things, <laughs> and as well as you know, I imagine the cloud providers are the biggest customers of Intel and AMD these days. Um, you know, just based on the volumes they're ta- they're buying, mm-hmm. you know, Intel and uh, you know. Azure, Oracle, everybody—they're buying you know billions of dollars in compute capacity. <laughs> Probably the largest buyers anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, there's there's a common metric, you know, aspect to this too, which is you're comparing, you know, workloads across different cloud providers, your own data center, and having that commonality so that you can sort of have that conversation of like, oh, I can migrate. It's going to look like this and cost this much is important. Um, and I, you know, I also think that, you know, when we talk about serverless, um, in a lot of cases, we're we're not talking about the bleeding edge sort of like squeeze out every bit of crunch out of my CPU, or you know, that they're they're the workloads are very distinct. We're, you know, so it's interesting. 
don't know. Mm. I mean, I think AMD AMD realized around like the late nineties, around the Pentium sort of era, that go that the benchmarking themselves against Intel clock speeds wasn't an accurate metric. Yet here we are, twenty years later, and we're still talking about three point five gigahertz or three point seven gigahertz or something else. So that's very much a marketing term. Yeah. I totally lost interest after one point twenty one. <laughs> I, mean, I, nice. I sort of feel like AMD learned the lesson that being first to, you know, first the highest speeds isn't going to matter at the end of the day because they were the first gigahertz speed, right? Uh, they beat Intel by six months, I think. Uh, and it didn't materially change the market for them, you know, and I think that's so, you know, is that really that they, they realized people don't care about clock speed or they realized that, that they couldn't beat Intel on clock speed? I think it's a clock speed doesn't tell the whole story. I mean, you, you can't compare sure. clock speed between ARM and, and the x86. They're completely I mean, now different. we know that. Now we know that all the Intel chips basically all have a major defect in them and how they do predictive uh, predictive processing. And so, you know, yes, you're right. <laughs> clock speed is not everything these days. <laughs> yes, actually, Ryan, you, make, you bring up a good point though about the specific use cases for for serverless. I I wonder if there's a a room in the market now. I should have made this a prediction. <laughs> I wonder if there's room in the market for actually a, I mean, not that Amazon needs to sprawl anymore with their compute services, but a different compute service, which which is designed for slightly longer running workloads than Lambda, but maybe not containers. And maybe you don't pay per second, you, you pay some kind of proportion of compute used. Um, I don't know. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of more, more of a durable functions kind of a thing. Then, the, the, yeah, I mean, if you think for. about like the ML, you know, specific chips, and you can see maybe Amazon's laying some framework down to offer a similar sort of, you know, com- some middle ground compute service to support. Yeah, you know, there's all kinds of different workloads, not yeah. just ML. I mean, Lambda's Lambda's super fast to start up. I, what if I don't care if it's fast to start up? Like, why why pay for the why pay for the speed that Lambda starts up at now? Because that must come at a price. Mm-hmm. Why not just give me something where I can say sure. Start this thing up. I don't care if it takes ten seconds anymore. I don't care about the cold start. What I do care about is value for money, and Lambda isn't great value for money. It's interesting. Uh, I saw a blog post uh, from Ben Kehoe, actually, who's a friend of the show. He's been on our PCB Talk segments before. Um, he actually wrote a whole thing about you know Amazon building something to compete with Lambda <laughs> instead of making Lambda be able to run functions longer. Uh, but to actually write a competitive service that does that, and the re- importance of why, you know, making Lambda be this long-running thing and not what Lambda meant to be is actually a disservice to Lambda, and he'd rather see them build out a different service. Uh, it was quite an interesting take uh, as well. So I, th- I think you're right, Jonathan. I think there's some conversation that's happening in that space where, you know, the desire from Amazon to make Lambda look more like traditional computing or more like containers is not what the you know not what Lambda advocates really want at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they can call it batch. <laughs> Wait a second. Yeah, but I have to manage the EC2 cluster. I want batch, but on on somebody else's hardware. <laughs> yeah. I, so I haven't used batch since Fargate has become a prevalent. So like, can't you not? Because it's just ECS under, under the hood. So can, isn't it on someone else's compute these days? It's all on someone else's compute. Yeah. Well, that's true. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to GCP. Uh, speaking about compute and how many services can we get to run Lambda functions? <laughs> uh, with how many now? Does Google have at least three? At least three. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Well, up first, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about sustainability and how important sustainability actually is to buyers. Uh, and Google actually answered the question this week and showed that I'm just wrong. <laughs> so that's fine. <laughs> Uh, apparently, it should be a bigger priority for all people. I, and I'm not saying it's not a big priority. It should be. But, uh, you know, they had a survey here that they sponsored with IDG uh, to survey 2,000 IT decision makers uh, to basically identify what the priorities were for sustainability. And so uh, Google says that businesses are taking a closer look at how we work, learn, live, and consume with work stoppages and quarantine it was proven that carbon emissions and pollution levels saw reductions, highlighting just how linked businesses and environmental stability are linked. Uh, although I do sort of laugh that Google has said they're going back to the office at some point. <laughs> so clearly not enough to make a major change there. Uh, but anyways, in this uh, survey of 2000 IT decision makers, uh, it basically uh, 90% of them said that sustainability is a priority for IT, and 75% report that it's a must-have or major consideration when evaluating cloud providers. So that's a pretty interesting metric. Uh, otherwise, it's just kind of a puff blog post, but uh, yeah, <laughs> did answer the question of like, who actually is buying on this? And apparently everyone is buying on this. 90% yeah. respondents. I mean, where do they advertise? Like, Greenpeace Week? Oh, IDG. <laughs> so I mean, who, who still reads IDG heavily? Yeah. But I mean, if you were interviewed on this topic, even if it wasn't a priority for me, just, I would probably answer yes, it's a priority. Yeah. But, and, and this is the problem with polling. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and, you know, it, it's. I, I hope it is actually a priority. Um, well, I think that when it's going to translate to something meaningful is when people start actually being willing to pay more for a service that that runs on you know sustainable energy or or companies have sustainable practices instead of just we expect that and the lowest price. Yeah, yeah, because there's a big difference between it being a priority and it being a premium that you're willing to pay for. Yeah, yeah. or, or consideration. Put your money where your mouth is if you want to say yes, it's a priority. Yeah, I guess if if the question is, Peter, would you consider the environment when deciding which instance type to use? Would you Would you say no? <laughs> Is right. I mean, I'd be like, of course, of course, I consider that very deeply. I can very deeply consider that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, I don't. No, I hate the environment. I just pick the one that's in the top of the list. To be honest. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, if, if people were buying based on that alone, wouldn't you just be all be buying ARM processors? Because I mean, they're already shown to be way more efficient and way more cost effective, and also better for the environment. So you know, that's the best thing, right? When more efficient is the target because that is better for the environment and is cheaper. Mm-hmm. But then the problem is we just use more of them. More of them, and you know, right? It, I mean, it's the, the, our our use cases expand to fill our budget, and then we're back to where we started. I have to start advertising Intel now. The Hummer of CPUs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's a show title idea. <laughs> <laughs> For listeners of the Cloud Pod, you know that I have no love for Microsoft Active Directory, which is why I'm excited to tell you about the leading cloud directory platform, JumpCloud. JumpCloud makes it easy to solve today's IT challenges by unifying device and user management through a single pane of glass, enabling you to securely manage your users and devices and perform common tasks like onboarding and offboarding remote workers. With JumpCloud, you no longer need to implement an on-premise Active Directory infrastructure or additional tooling to scope a user's access, and you can ensure that the user is coming from trusted devices and networks. 
Enabling Jump Cloud Zero Trust solutions improves the security and compliance of your network, ensuring users have access only to the services they need when they need them. To start your organization's move to a modern, secure hybrid work model, try Jump Cloud for free today at cloud.jumpcloud.com slash the cloudpod. That's cloud.jumpcloud.com slash the cloudpod. All right, well, let's move on to VR and AR. Always fun topics. Uh, you know, a- VR and AR devices are rapidly moving to tetherless solutions because people don't like to have cables attached to helmets that are very heavy on their heads, clearly. Uh, and so vendors uh, like HTC and Oculus are emerging with products that are moved tethering needs, nailing new freedom to experience AR. But of course, uh, enhanced portability and that reduced cost has led to a reduction in the uh, amount of compute power available in these devices. And so it does limit your ability to do heavy demand uh, needs. The limited on-device computer power of these devices uh, is fine for casual gaming. However, advanced workstation uses uh, like 3D modeling or uh, you know 3D models of hearts and things that you're trying to use for more AR VR capabilities just can't handle the light uh, processors of the portable tabletless units. So uh, NVIDIA Cloud XR uh, with the power of GPUs running in the NVIDIA RTX virtual workstations in Google Cloud allows you to now experience high-fidelity VR and AR apps from just about anywhere with a good internet connection. Uh, combined with Google Cloud's private fiber network and Cloud XR QoS technology, they can provide the user with the highest possible quality of service. In fact, the streaming experience, they say, is comparable to a tethered headset, uh, which is big claims considering that, you know, even the tethered ones right now make me sick <laughs> because the movement of my head is not in sync enough and my eyes don't like that. So, yeah. what do you think, Jonathan, is our VR AR expert? How do you feel uh-huh. about this one? I mean, I think, I, look at what has done with their recent video cards, they put a huge emphasis on using models of human vision to to focus the compute power on things that you actually look at and care about. And so you can upscale things to 8K, not not because you know, the game's rendering images in 8K, but because the, because it, it can it can have a good old guess at what looks like 8K to your eye when you look at it. But, but the reality is you're not rendering every single frame, every single pixel like that. And so when it comes to streaming VR, you really have to, you, you can be very smart about what you send to a consumer and what you don't have to. I mean, there's still a lot of, there's still enough compute locally that it has a good idea of what most of the scenes can look like. So potentially, you know, the, the local the local compute does, does the background, all the bits that aren't complex, and you just stream the complexity bits, the bits that, that do need to be latency sensitive on demand. But but we're also talking about people, you know, it's, 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 this is not your dial-up modem type internet speeds. This is somebody with, Potentially gigabit internet connections. We're talking about we're talking about like robotic surgery and things like this. This is this is people with dedicated internet connections and very very fast Wi-Fi, like Wi-Fi six or even faster, like sixty gigahertz Wi-Fi connections. These headsets. So it's, I mean, they they may they may kind of pimp it as, uh, you know, streaming for the masses, but I think the reality is you're not going to get that kind of quality, uh, in your in your Oculus Quest for a very long time. So no, no. Uh, Peter still has to wait longer until he has his full uh, VR racing simulator. Yeah, so. I mean, you, you just just go buy yourself a Formula One car. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think you, could, you can rent some track time and yeah, for less sure. money than the less yeah. money than the video card would cost you right now. Because video cards that's are if you buy a video card right now. That's, that's the other problem. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, uh, last week we talked about how you can improve your monitoring of GKE with in-context UI tools. Uh, and Google this week is extending the capability to Compute Engine. 
Uh, from the Google Console, developers can click into any VM and access a rich set of pre-built visualizations designed to give insights into common scenarios and issues associated with CPU, disk, memory, networking, and live processes. Uh, although Google admits no single troubleshooting journey fits all needs. This enhanced set of observability tools should make it faster and more intuitive to do some of the following things. Identify networking changes via metrics and logs. Uh, determine the impact of specific processes on utilization. Choosing the appropriate disk size for workloads. Uh, security operations and data sovereignty. Cost optimization via networking changes and measuring and tuning your memory performance all through the new UI in context tools. I'm surprised. I feel like all the monitoring tools out there have been missing this for a long time. In that, you know, they, they seem to have all the features you need, but then getting the things you want is so difficult. And so, but we all want the same stuff pretty much, don't we? I mean, shouldn't it be easy for them to, you know, get 80% of what we want pre configured for us before we start? Do you think this is this is a symptom of um, perhaps developers who don't have operational experience? Though, I mean, if developers are now troubleshooting their, why their applications aren't working, running running on compute, they may never have realized that you know inodes exist on a file system, and you could you can actually run out of those things. Or you know, there's, there's there's a ton of things that as a software engineer who's not also an operations person, that they, they, they have no no concept that these problems are even possible, let alone. You know, how to find them or, or fix them. Is that what you think? That's what I think. Okay, me too. Me <laughs> <too>. <laughs> uh, I mean, I do, I, I think the, you know, like I was actually talking to someone today about, you know, we have an RDS database that's taking too long to do a thing. And I'm like, well, what's the bottleneck? And he's like, well, I don't know. It might be bandwidth. It might be this other thing. And it's like, you know, it'd be great if he could just go to the instance and have, there'd be a quick recommendation from Amazon saying, hey, we noticed that you're, you know, this instance class you're using is using up its allotted bandwidth, and maybe you should consider going to wait. Now, Amazon doesn't provide that to you inside of the recommender, but that's a whole different menu. It's a whole different part of the console. You'd have to know it exists. Like, so this in-context uh, UI stuff, I actually see the value of it. I see why it's important. Yeah. And then be able to apply ML and other things to it and say, hey, you know, your application is you know doing this thing. It would be benefit from this other thing and be right there in the console with my EC2 instance would be super helpful. So I'd also I'd like a, to go the other way as well, though. I'd like I mean it's great bringing the operations type uh, visibility to the development world. What about um, giving me some insight into running applications as as an ops person? I mean, sure. Show me maybe now. I suppose we're talking into we're getting into the app dynamics data collection kind of realm, and yeah, I'd love to know what the Java heap's doing on this particular log stash node at a particular time. Can I log in and run some some tools and download a dump and visualize it on my laptop? No, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I know it's possible, yeah. but a tool, a tool to, to sort of democratize all of that, all of that information will be awesome. And then link them to like uh, common issues in mm-hmm. uh, God. I'm forgetting the name of this stupid service, uh, like Server Fault or uh, oh yeah, like oh, Stack, Stack Overflow. Overflow. <laughs> Stack Overflow. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. just yeah. so that's just crowdsource. It's like. All the people who searched on this ended up solving their problem by using this configuration, and you can just plug that in and take a look at your stuff. <laughs> oh, that's genius. That's genius. Uh, I, I still I love my, my favorite X, XKCD of all times is the one where you know the, the guy, the little stick figure guy is looking at it and he's like, Where who are you, user 5732 or whatever? You know, back in 1997, <laughs> you had the same error I did. What did you see? What did you find? <laughs> yeah, we, we should totally do that. Have a, a CloudWatch logs uh, lambda that just watches. And if, the, if, if there's a certain number of errors, then it goes off and Googles Quora and all these other sites to, to see mm-hmm. if there's a, see a very fine defect. Not a bad idea. 
I have a lot of meetings that I only have to kind of pay attention to coming up, but I think this might happen. I like this. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, Google uh, highlights the huge success of their partner program that they've been expanding over the last two years using partners like Foghorn, uh, who's been a friend of the show and, and day one sponsor. Uh, and they yeah. they see that the partner network has set themselves apart in three key ways from competitors. First up, it ensures that the Google Cloud and its partners are aligned to the same business goals and strategies. Number two, provides partners with opportunities to earn and showcase their skills and empowers partners to demonstrate and demonstrate value through customer success stories, certs, NPS scores, and more. And Google highlights some of the key things that have been fantastic. The average size of a partner-involved deal has more than doubled since 2019 to 2020, which... You know, how many partners are pinging me all the time about Google? There's definitely some hunger on the partner network. Mm-hmm. Uh, they onboarded almost three times more indirect resellers in the first three quarters of 2020 than in 2019. And this might be for Google Apps, just to be fair, Google Workspaces now, as they call it. Uh, partner created pipeline in the mid-market grew more than 200% year over year for 2019 to 2020. Uh, and partners were involved in three times more customer deals in 2020 than in 2018. With enterprise deals, uh, with partner attachment increased 50% from 2019 to 2020, and the partner ecosystem grew by 400% in the last two years. So there's definitely uh, a fire <laughs> in the Google market as the partners have seen the smoke and arrived very clearly and brought the business with them, which is great, which is super helpful. What do you think, Peter? Yeah, I mean, you know, they made a conscious effort to really focus on partner-led and and partnering with partners for the maximum number of their opportunities moving forward. And we've seen a difference in both their, uh, like the way their employees, their way their sales team works, et cetera. So I think it's cool. I think it's, uh, I think it's, I, I hope it continues. You know, there's still such a, a smaller player on the board that the, the size of the pie is smaller as far as the number of companies looking to leverage their platform. But we're excited about their embracing of that partner channel. And as they grow, we're excited to see, hopefully get to do more deals with them. Great. Yeah, it's always good to see the partner network firing all cylinders because I think, you know, there's just too many customers who are interested in all things to uh, be able to, you know, leverage someone from Google every time. And so being able to go to a partner like Foghorn or others and get the quality support and get the support from Google back to you, knowing that we're getting the right level of service is great. And then uh, from my perspective, all the, all the hyperscalers, it's like, I don't know why they wouldn't want to embrace the partner channel because th- those are the high touch services that are not scalable and you know if you if you allow partners to do that work then uh, you can really focus on you know building out your product and service set uh, that the sets that are scalable and that they can really benefit that all their customers can benefit from seems like a good it's a match made in heaven it's not always it doesn't always work out that way in reality but that's uh I, it's a no-brainer to me well, Tom's current joined early 2019, so I, I think really that just just seeing the growth in these sales channels is probably very much a symptom of his leadership. Oh, for sure. I mean, that was the one thing that Oracle. The best thing they brought from Oracle was a how to talk to enterprises, and b a strong support for the partner network, which I think is super valuable. Yeah, and it's working. You know, we talked about earnings last week. Uh, you know, they're not having as much of a loss, and another billion dollars of their profitable you know business. So. Let's see. And moving on to Asia. Uh, so apparently, uh, customers who adopt and scale apps uh, in Asia constantly need to grow or resize their network in the cloud, which is a bummer. <laughs> With their Asia virtual networks, uh, there's been a long-standing constraint where any address space change is only allowed if the virtual network doesn't have any peerings, uh, which would be kind of annoying. <laughs> so if you need to increase the size of your subnet or you need to change it, 
uh, and you have a lot of peering relationships with partners or customers or other internal entities, you have to unpeer all of that. Uh, that's a lot of coordination, a lot of work. And so finally, uh, this limit is being lifted and customers can now freely resize their virtual network without incurring any downtime. So you know, if you're in Azure and this has been a pain point for you, Azure now has a fix for you. Yeah. I wish there was some you know, ability to swap out VPCs on other cloud providers. Yeah. Without having to redeploy my entire stack. <laughs> having to unpeer one connection to resize anything is too many. Presumably, it's only limited usefulness. I mean, the, if you need to resize a VPC, then you, you only have a, a certain space that you can expand into, or I guess you could add you add extra addresses to it. I, I mean, come on, it's 2021, like IPv6. We should be using IPv6 by now. We shouldn't, peering should not be a problem. <laughs> I mean, considering that our internet service provider still doesn't support IPv6 natively. <laughs> so, you know, there's still a lot of limitations to uh, to that, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, I, I, it's definitely, you know, I don't exactly understand this constraint because I hadn't run into it before, but I also would say that you need to do some thinking about your network sizes before you just commit to a network size. <laughs> you know, like, what are you really going to use the service for? And what is, you know, if I were to think out three or four years, what does massive success look like in this VPC? Uh, and maybe think about that sizing a little bit differently. Yeah, and you got to consider change, right? Like you got to consider that it's going to grow past that capacity, and it's the cloud model. You don't pre-allocate that capacity. You don't oversize all your networks by thousands of IP addresses just in case. You know, you want it to be ephemeral and dynamic. And yeah, it's which easier is, said than done. Granted, but you know. <laughs> which is the beauty of peering, right? So that it makes sense. You know, okay, I'm having a VPC, I peer it. And then I'm I'm good to go because I know how that changed. But if you couldn't actually resize or do anything to your VPC once it was peered, that's a bit of a limitation. So, so that one. Uh, well, the reason why Azure government uh, is super upset about the NSA deal is because uh, they just released their Azure government top secret uh, you know region <laughs> available to all U.S. national security missions to innovate securely with Azure. The Azure government top secret is a significant milestone in their commitment to bring unmatched commercial innovation to their government customers across all data classifications. Uh, and you know what this does mean is that there's now more complexity in the Azure world, uh, as there's now four offerings <laughs> for you in the public sector, uh, from just, you know, just normal Azure, which can handle you know FedRAMP high, to then uh, Azure government, uh, Azure top secret, uh, and Azure government secret. <laughs> so you now check and choose between all the different secrets you want and then set up your environment to meet those needs as they support all the DoD uh, impact levels as well as the IDC requirements and the JSIG requirements, uh, depending on which ones you need to do across those different services. The Azure government top secret region launches with 60 initial services, uh, with more coming soon, and meaning Azure's already failed because they already told us how many services they have. So it's supposed <laughs> to be top secret, I shouldn't know. Yeah. So, well, I thought it was weird that they published the address and the blog post and with a phone number. Like, no, just kidding. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Admin credentials. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we talked about in the past GitHub code spaces versus Visual Studio code spaces. Uh, and we, we, we pontificated in the past that this seems a little bit confusing in the market. Uh, and GitHub is now expanding their rollout of its browser based code spaces coding environment by extending it to GitHub teams and enterprise cloud plans. And they've now also announced that they're going to combine the efforts into just GitHub code spaces. So if you're using Visual Studio code spaces, uh, you will be migrated into the new GitHub code spaces, which is now official news from Microsoft. So less confusion, more online web IDE editors, please. Yes. As long as they, you know, because I kind of like my, you know, 
bespoke IDE, as long as that integration stays solid and they don't start preferring one or the other. But you know, I'm old man yellow cloud type guy. I, I can't get yeah, I can't I can't even think about having an IDE that's not running on my laptop. I don't know why. Well so the the key thing for me with it is not actually the laptop, it's my iPad. And I want to be able to code on my iPad. Well, they don't. There's not really great IDEs for iPads still. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even Apple's uh, Xcode doesn't run on iPads. So you know, you you were kind of limited what you could do. So that, you know, being able to have this capability, this code space capability, is nice. So if I'm on the road and I have my iPad and I want to make a change and I have CI/CD, I can make those changes, do my Git commit, and then know that that's going to fix whatever through my code pipeline that I have set up. So there's value to it, especially if you're living the iPad lifestyle uh, when you travel, which is what I do. Um, and I don't know one last reason I had to carry around a heavy laptop with me, which I always appreciate for sure. Yeah. That, you know, when you think about being on call and having to act in a quick response, like it's a pretty powerful thing. It's awesome. Well, Azure Migrate now has a preview of an at-scale agentless discovery and assessment uh, for ASP.NET web apps to help you migrate them to the cloud on Azure App Services. The Azure Migrate appliance uh, can be run in your VMware environment and will help you discover, assess, inventory, identify application dependency analysis and give you a simple, uh, pretty dashboard, if you look at the blog post, uh, that shows you all the apps you can migrate immediately to Azure App Service just with a click of a button. I'm sure it's that easy, right? It's just Click, click. <laughs> uh, but, you know, this is a great way to know what your migration looks like and maybe potentially what your systems are uh, that need to get migrated to the cloud, which is a great starting place for many companies and teams. And apparently, yeah, it can discover up 20,000 web apps. So if you have 20,000 web apps and you need a tool, this is for you, which I hope you don't have 20,000 web apps on IIS. That's a, if you have 20,000 web apps, you definitely need a tool. You definitely need a tool. Yeah. <laughs> But I also assume you already have a tool because to manage 20,000 web apps at scale, that a tool that manages them would be really bad. Yeah. <laughs> so Really? Yeah. Would be, would be unpleasant. Let's put it that way. Well, that is it for Azure News. And that takes us to the lightning round, Peter. Amazon CloudWatch Logs now supports usage metrics. Time series databases and logs. That's always great. <laughs> this isn't that. This is all this is, is just being able to say, you didn't check the logs. You just said you checked the logs. Uh, oh. Amazon EMR now allows you to easily identify latest releases that have the applications you need. <laughs> Which, you, if you aren't really familiar with EMR or Hadoop, uh, you soon learn that it's not just Hadoop and EMR. It's Hive and HBase and Spark and all these components you have to manage and scale. And yeah, it's a nightmare because you don't know which version is with which one of the EMR releases. And so now it's much easier to figure that out, which I appreciate. It's a decoder ring. I like it. Yep. AWS Snowball Edge Storage Optimized Devices now supports high-performance NFS data transfer. I mean, you still can't beat the speed of freeway. So, you know, I don't care how fast this is. You got to get it on the device first, right? Yeah, <laughs> but that's on the freeway. It's still moving faster than anything else. <laughs> yes. Does it fall faster if you drop the snowball over the edge of a building? Like, I mean, it might not be recoverable at that point, but you know, it was faster for a moment. Yeah. <laughs> the Amazon EMR now supports Amazon S3 access points to simplify access control. Uh, as I, we talk about the discoverability, also securing EMR could be a nightmare. <laughs> so this is also <laughs> very appreciated. <laughs> This, uh, yeah, this is a feature that was developed out of pain. Yes, for sure. A lot of them have been. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these S3 access point features have been developed out of pain. <laughs> you 
you know, like S3 access point, they only access a single bucket. Like, you know, you, you can see the scenarios of the security people and like why they want it based on, yeah. you know, other terrible things that have happened to S3 buckets. Yeah. It's also, it's also free, right? You don't pay for data transfer through the access point, I don't think. Correct. So yeah. as you move terabytes of data for, for uh, a big data job, that, that could be significant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. AWS Systems Manager Change Manager now supports AWS IAM roles as approvers. How do they do approvers before? <laughs> I don't understand. You had to you had to file a change defect to you know manually configure an IM user while getting an exception so that you could go approve your change. I mean, like, wouldn't this That's be easier, wouldn't it be easier to write this as AWS Systems Manager Changer now supports AWS IM roles so you can group approvers together so you don't have to have one person who can approve. I was thinking federated federated access. Yeah, it could be federated too. But yeah. it, it's really about I think allowing you to specify a role that you've assigned that can be an approver versus a person, which is, I think, what it is mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was, oh, thank goodness, we can finally stop using our shared password. <laughs> <laughs> that, that also may be true. <laughs> it's written in the conference room. Mm-hmm. It's on the board. It's on the board. AWS Snow Family now enables you to remotely monitor and operate your connected snow cone devices. <laughs> Seems like there's an obvious joke in here. Like, and I can't, I can't quite put it together. I've got a you know, snow family on the back of a minivan eating snow cones, but yeah, I can't, I just can't pull it together. I was more, uh, you know, curious about who wants to have this new data expel path. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, like now I can post, I can put it on the, I can monitor my snow cone from the web, and now know what the data is, and then I can change the shipping address. Perfect. Ooh. Oh God, <laughs> that <would> suck. <laughs> and now my data is being transferred at lightning speed to the hacker. Yeah. Amazon Code Guru Profiler adds recommendation support for Python applications. Oof, I recommend that Ryan doesn't use this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was Jonathan? Yeah. What'd you say? Better start looking for a new job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. No. The, some secrets should not see the light of day. You know, some code doesn't need coverage. You can now detect multicollinearity and easily export results in a few clicks with Amazon SageMaker Data Wrangler. And you had to wrangle that multicollinearity too. I really just yeah. had this here because I wanted you to say it because I don't know how to say it. <laughs> <laughs> I went with multicollinearity. Yeah, that's, that's pretty I, good. I mean, it's pretty good. I mean, it's double L, yeah. so it could be culinary. But I, I, you know, I'm going to go with your yeah. pronunciation. I'm yeah. taking it. I think it's that's why maybe, I maybe the guy's name that invented it is Colin. Maybe. <laughs> And it's his ear, multi-colonarity. It's like a colonarity. So is, is it like a, you know, one of those uh, enigmas? Anyways. Well, thank you for adding that to uh, increase the likelihood that I mispronounce something in my... <laughs> no, no, I actually, I actually could not figure something that's published out. and never going to get deleted from the internet ever. Thank you. Yeah, I, it was really <laughs> more that I couldn't... I, I didn't know how to say it, so I was hoping you did, and then I just learned something. So <laughs> the, the lightning round becomes educational. That's how this works. AWS Elastic Beanstalk supports capacity rebalancing for Amazon EC2 spot instances. Making you wonder what exactly Beanstalk's doing that it needs to add this as a feature versus just scaling up and down things. Yeah. Yeah. If I've deployed my app via Beanstalk, I do not care about this. Right? Like, this should just happen. AWS Transfer Family expands compatibility for... FTPs and FTP clients and increases the limit for the number of servers. 
which I'm super excited about because now I have a new interview question. Please tell me how you would use 50 AWS transfer family servers uh, and make it make sense to me. If you answer that question, I will hire you in a second. I think, I think it's the opposite, right? If they can if they can answer that question and make it make sense, you don't hire them. Well, I mean, that's... That was, I, that's mean. If you if you can if you can convince me that fifty uh, answer family servers is good, I, I'm concerned. <laughs> There's not even fifty. Well, re- like you can make a you can make an argument per region. Like okay, well I'm gonna have one in each region, and I'm gonna then put it behind a you know, sort of a global IP address or whatever. But there's not even 50 regions today, so it's a little harder to swallow. I'm flip-flopping on myself. I, actually, if you can convince me that that's a good idea, I'm, I'm going to hire you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to say. Yeah. It, depends yeah. on, it depends on what it is and how yeah. Rube Goldberg it actually is. <laughs> <laughs> and a uh, super exciting last one. Azure Blob Storage inventory is now generally available. I mean, I thought there was only like six Blob movies. So I think I already yeah. had the inventory down. Right. Some metadata on the release date, and you know where it was filmed. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, was it and was the blob made from chocolate pudding, or was it made from some other, you know, substance? You know, these are the questions we need to know in the inventory. Mm-hmm. So that's all. Uh, nice. I like that. Well, let me. Just, that concludes our round. I really want to give it to Jonathan for not saying anything the entire time, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I think you gave him that before. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go. You know, I'm going to go with the the, the blob inventory movies, Justin. Right. I kind of like right. that. I agree. Yeah, that was good. Well yeah. done. I couldn't have thought of one thing to say about that story. So good job. I mean, there was a couple others I struggled with in this one, so I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was a little. <laughs> close to home in my day job right now as so I'm struggling with S3 expansion. So it's like, it's sort of like, <laughs> I'm really glad they have this feature. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, well, this is the final time we will talk about the summit and the, uh, rein- the un- uncanceled reinforce is <laughs> that is next week. Uh, which, you know, if you're listening to this uh, episode on the day we drop it, uh, you may still have a chance to catch some of it uh, online, live and in person. Uh, depends on how fast we get it published next week. Uh, but AWS Storage Day is coming up very quickly, right after the summit and reinforce. Learn about all things uh, EBS, S3, EFS, NFS, oh, you know, XYZ. I don't know. FSX, maybe? XFX, sure. Okay, yeah, there's a bunch. <laughs> Anyways, that's all available to you uh, on September 2nd. So you check that out. Uh, and then the reinvent, of course, is still scheduled right now. Uh, I did check for a recording to see if it's still on November 29th through December 3rd. Uh, in Las Vegas and the Google Cloud next October 12th through the 14th. It's coming up very quick, uh, which if we do okay our, our predictions, we, we might do predictions again for Google Cloud next. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Or, the, or you know, the segment has died a terrible death <laughs> today. I'm not sure. We'll see how it goes. Well, it uh, depends how we measure success because our failure might be really entertaining. I mean, I it might be. I mean, I, like my, <laughs> my dream is that, you know, even if we all lose with zeros, that, you know, there's a product manager listening to the show who's like, you know, that's yes. a good idea and we should, we should totally <laughs> think about that. Yeah. So that's, those, agree, are my hopes. those are my hopes. Mm, I like it. Well, awesome. Thanks again, guys, for another fantastic week here in the cloud. And we'll see you next week. See you. All right, take it easy. And that is the week in the cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting and Jump Cloud. Check out our website, the home of the Cloud Pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, and send feedback or ask questions at thecloudpod.net or tweet us with the hashtag thecloudpod. Cloud Pod.